I'm Dave Rubin and joining me today is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor at City Journal and author of The Diversity Delusion, Heather McDonald, welcome back to The Rubin Report. It's great sort of being with you, Dave, as close as we can be. As close as we can be at the moment, but that's a good place to start because you are a New York City girl, but you have fled New York City to go to California during a lockdown. What's going on over there, Heather? Who would believe it? But actually, New York is is more insane at least than Orange County. I'm in Irvine, and here at least I can swim <laughs> which is very important to my, my mental health, my overall health. New York City uh, is in a state of utter hysteria. My pool makes it virtually impossible to swim. Uh, so here it, it feels a little saner without restaurants in New York, without the opera, there's really no point in being there. And of course uh, it is turning into a situation of maximal squalor, crime, threat, uh, people getting assaulted on the streets. So I, I don't know when I'm going to go back, frankly. I bought a one-way ticket out here and uh, still waiting for any any reason to go back, and I don't see yeah, one. Yeah, well, there you go. For the people that would say who in their right mind would go to California in the midst of all of this, we found one person, and she's coming from New York. So that, <laughs> that kind of says it all. Look, everything that, that I've talked to you about over the last couple of years, you've been on the show a few times, it seems that everything that you've been writing about, that you've been studying, all of these things, they, they seem to all be kind of coming to fruition right now. So, so we're, gonna, we're gonna try to hit on a whole bunch of stuff. But I guess first, since you fled New York to come to Cali, are you surprised in any way that these big government progressive lefty policies are ruining these cities and states? No, what I, what I have been surprised by is how perfectly the response to this pandemic mirrors political uh, pre-existing categories. It's, it's very curious that there is something truly fundamental, constitutional in the way people view the world, that there should be so clear a distinction between red state individuals who by and large are lockdown skeptics and then in the blue states, uh, the willingness of vast majorities of the population to put up with rules that are utterly arbitrary. I mean, they're made up out of whole cloth. The, the distinctions about when you can go out, how many people you can have at a table, it's ridiculous. And yet the passivity of the population before this is completely remarkable. So it, it seems like there is in fact uh, something very profound in the way people's psyches are constructed with regards to their attitudes of either credulity or skepticism towards the assertion uh, of elite power. And I, I am very grateful to you, Dave, for giving me the opportunity to say, I told you yeah. so! <laughs> and you have too. Those of us who have been warning about the 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 landslide of poison that's been coming out of the university for decades and people kind of turn their eyes away and they say oh ha ha, ha it's so funny these snowflakes it's not funny guys uh the whole safety is a ethic that is a feminist a feminine uh ideology of victimhood and the the aversion to risk and entrepreneurship that 
we see on universities now with this whole wellness initiatives and, and, and you know, people needing safe spaces, that is COVID writ large. It's the safety as a method against the spirit of entrepreneurship and risk taking. Oh, you're giving me so much to work with there. So, so as someone that loves numbers, because you're always diving into the actual numbers of what's going on in our inner cities, what's happening at, at the places of, at this point, quote unquote, higher ed, et cetera, et cetera. Was there any point when the lockdown started, roughly a year ago at this point, 11 months ago at this point, was there any point where you saw numbers that made sense to do all of the things that we've done? So, you know, that first two weeks, I was on the show saying, let's do the two week lockdown because every expert said two weeks to flatten the curve. I said, I'm not an expert in this, but I'm gonna bring on some experts to talk about it. But I was worried from, from beat one about the never ending extension of all of this. Did you ever see numbers that were like, oh, okay, this is what we have to do right now? Well, Dave, I don't want to like toot my own horn here, but I have to say I was first out of the gate among conservatives in lockdown skepticism with a piece in the new criterion that was compared to what? Mm -hmm. And it was putting what were then the numbers uh, in context of other types of, of deaths that we put up with. I mean, 40,000 highway deaths a year that we could eliminate entirely by uh, reducing highway speeds to 20 miles an hour. We don't because we are willing to say there will be 40,000 lives lost. We are we value our efficiency and our convenience more. Uh, and I, I have to say my, the distinction I drew earlier between liberal and conservative views wasn't completely accurate because I was roundly attacked by many conservative writers for being willing to kill off grandma. But no, we saw in March uh, the Italian health agency published data on the uh, characteristics of coronavirus decedents. Nothing has changed since March, 2020. Average age 80, almost three comorbidities being obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and then others like cancer, nothing has changed. We knew almost from the start uh, that this was a disease that targeted the very elderly, even Neil Ferguson, the author of that infamous uh, study that was predicting 20 million dead in the United States uh, if we did nothing, even he admitted that two-thirds of the people who would die in 2020 from coronavirus would have died anyway from other causes. Now, is it, is it happy that they die? Of course not, but to be honest, Death is the inevitable, banal, mediocre end of all life. And when you get to be a certain age, you know, the New York Times has this maudlin section that they run periodically called Those We've Lost. Mm -hmm. And they list like a 101-year-old vet of four wars. And he's supposed to be a coronavirus victim, as if he's going to live for another 20 years without <laughs> coronavirus. They do this regularly. Yeah. We recently had a hundred year. No, it was a hundred one year old, maybe a hundred, uh, last of the Tuskegee Airmen. Again, he's going to die of pneumonia. And he's probably dying with, not from COVID, which is the other big 
sleight of hand that our public health experts use to try and inflate the death numbers. Were you shocked when you got some of that pushback from conservatives? I remember there was a specific day very early on, maybe around April, where uh, Ben Shapiro was on my show and he said what we all know to be true, which is that you're gonna have to live with some amount of risk, as you just said, and a certain amount of people, we just accept they die as part of the circle of life. You don't want it to happen, you mitigate the risks, but this is what actuaries do. Uh, but I saw a ton of pushback from conservatives and it was like, wait, when do con since when do conservatives believe in a perfectly safe system? I agree. And again, so I have to compl complicate my initial black and white sort of Manichaean distinction. It is absolutely the case that a whole lot of conservative intellectuals took the uh, ridiculous attitude that was expressed by Governor Andrew Cuomo initially that if we can save just one life, there's no amount of lockdowns which will not be worth it. Well, that is absurd. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if that had been the attitude, there would be no United States today. Uh, there would have been nobody who took off from Plymouth Rock because the chance of survival in a transatlantic voyage back then was about one in six. And so... It should be the hallmark of not just conservatives, but of human, rational human beings to realize that you make trade-offs and that you balance one sort of risk against the other. But yes, I was very surprised uh, that conservatives had adopted this safetyism ethic, which is to focus on one particular type of risk uh, to the exclusion of any other type of consideration. And you know, again, it gets wearisome because all of these arguments have been out there. The argument that I've made and others have made, you've made, which is that, but what about deaths from suicide, from untreated uh, illnesses that are people because people are too scared out of their minds to go to a hospital? What about the destruction of children across the globe from the poverty, from the lack of education? We are we are consigning them to lives of stunted capacity. All of those trade-offs are not being made. Uh, so it, it, it's sort of the core of conservatives, which isn't to say that there aren't a whole lot that were just as spooked as, as the liberals with their masks, wearing their masks at 5 a.m. in Central Park when there's six people spread over 800 acres. Yeah. So, so you're not gonna put on a mask for the rest of this interview? <laughs> I, I've, I'm gonna get my virtue from other means, I guess. Fair enough, fair enough. What, what do you think if you had to grade the professional class at this point, if you had to grade the experts? Because I think actually the next coming crisis that we're gonna have, when we, you know, now we just go from crisis to crisis or at least, you know, two crises to another two or whatever it is, is that I think that a huge amount of our experts have completely lost all credibility. When you see videos of Fauci saying masks don't do anything, then wear a mask, now two masks, maybe, kinda, and then, you know, Biden, another 100 days federal mask mandate, why should the people in Montana be living under the same rules as someone in metropolitan New York City? Just sort of the elite class, do you think that they've sort of done irreparable damage to themselves? No, I don't. Oh, interesting. Uh, uh, well, from an objective point of view, yes, right. but but what one has learned uh, over this last two years or so, and we knew that beforehand, is how profoundly powerful one's pre-existing conceptions are and worldview. So I don't think Fauci is at all discredited 
in that very large portion of the population that views the New York Times as as gospel truth. And you know, I, I you're an optimist, and you think that most people are are uh, skeptical of of the liberal worldview and ideology. I'm not so sure about that. And right now, certainly, the liberal elites are in the seat of power. And, you know, the vote for Biden, as far as I was concerned, was sadly a vote for safetyism. Mm -hmm. It was a vote for uh, turning America's back on its history of of entrepreneurship and risk-taking and rationality and a sane attitude towards uh, what life is about. You know, Trump got a lot of votes, but Biden got more. And and so I, I don't know. I, I think that the whole world is, as Andrew Sullivan said, we're all on campus now. And um, this this ideology is, is very powerful. And the more people who graduate from college, the harder it's going to be to turn things around. Yeah. And yet there were plenty of people, we've talked about it before, telling telling you and I, I mean, I remember when, when we did an event, I think at Berkeley together, saying, oh, you guys are making this up. This is, it'll just stay on college campuses. And then what do they always say? Then they'll go out to the real world. Well, apparently the real world didn't have uh, many safeties equipped. Well, the big lie on college campuses for decades has been that the characteristic that defines America above all else is racism. Uh, And And so you have this cultivation of a victim mentality where to be a female on a college campus is to be at risk of one's life. Whereas in fact, there's nothing more privileged than being an American female anywhere, but on on a college campus, are you kidding me? I mean, the whole place is run by females to its utter (laughs) uh, destruction. Or to be a under URM as as the jargon goes. And I heard today that somehow uh, acronyms are now racist. I didn't get the explanation, but I'm not surprised because everything, everything is, is racist. racist. But to, to be a URM, which is an underrepresented minority, is also to be at risk of one's life, notwithstanding the fact that every single college with any kind of selectivity ties itself into knots to admit as many blacks and Hispanics as possible with test scores that would be automatically disqualifying if they were presented by whites and Asians. Uh, so this idea that racism is and sexism are the things we should be thinking about most and that define everything and are the reason to tear down Western civilization, that now is the driving force in the in the world at large in the United are, States. Are you worried? Are you uh, worried that the backlash to what you just said will actually start a new type of racism when the average white kid or Asian, and, and you've written a bunch about this. Uh, when the average Asian kid is going to have to consistently score quite literally sometimes 20 percentage points higher than the average black or Latino kid, you could see why someone would become racist. Not, not You should not become racist, but the, the system will have reorganized things in a way that will, that will breed resentment. Absolutely, and uh, it's only a matter of logic. All you have to ask is, well, why does every other group get identity politics and not whites? I'm, you know, whatever you view of that statement as a logical matter. Now, I guess they have the whole argument about, well, blacks can't be racist because they then define racism to be something accompanied with by power. 
But if you're a working class white, uh, you don't really feel like you've got a whole lot of white privilege. But, you know, right now there's a professor uh, in Florida who is under enormous pressure. He may have even been fired for talking about black privilege. And frankly, he's absolutely right. Again, if you're if you're applying to Google mm-hmm. right now and you're a black engineer, you've got it made. You, you know, you can just write your ticket. You can ask for your salary. Same if you're applying to be a black chemistry professor at Berkeley or Caltech or Harvard, uh, they've, the, the welcome mat is open for you. Black, black privilege is real. And so it is quite logical for whites to say, or Asians to say, but Asians are kind of allowed ethnic identity, but if, if they can somehow claim to be oppressed as well. And there's a, it's very weird what goes on with Asian identity where they kind of want to be students of color and then the administration says, no, 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 you can't be students of color because you're too academically successful. But you see this at UC Berkeley mm-hmm. where they, they want the victim status. But yeah, it's maybe it will happen. It's, it's a question of sort of the Trump deplorables versus the elite whites and how much they can suppress that. But it is arguably bubbling along under the surface. I fear that I know your answer here, but are you surprised at all to now see that not only has this basically decimated the universities, but we're seeing this now every, well, basically in every blue city, where now all of even the private schools are being infected with all of this. That every, the charter schools, of course the public schools, but basically schools that were the elite schools of New York City uh, are now instead of having, um, you know, uh, score-based uh, admissions, we have equity-based admissions. They're going to destroy their own schools. Well, this has been going on for a long time. And, you know, sort of the one of the rules of media is you have to pretend like something you're saying is for the first time. I mean, I wrote an article yeah. years ago, decades ago, about elite prep schools like Andover and Exeter and in New England uh, that were already back in the 90s embracing multiculturalism and and telling their black students that they must think of themselves as oppressed and putting chips on the shoulder of everybody minority student. But it, it, it certainly is getting worse. And what I've been researching for a while now and keep getting distracted by other things, but which breaks my heart to pieces uh, is the assault right now on the thing I love most in life, which is classical music. And what I've been noticing is that there's not a single guardian of our great traditions of art, whether it's a museum director or in the case of music, an orchestra conductor, uh, orchestra manager, a, a superstar singer or soloist, certainly not the classical music press, which is willing, who is willing to defend this tradition of such sublime expression of, of extraordinary mm-hmm variety of human experience and and uh, communication from the charge that it is defined by racism and white patriarchal power. It is ludicrous. There's a madman at Hunter College, which is one of the City University of New York colleges in New York City, a music theorist who's involved in a very big spat right now <laughs> over a Viennese music theorist known as called Heinrich Schenker. And this, this hunter music theorist, Philip Ewell, 
is mad. He, he, he defines everything in classical music as a function of white maleness. So he, he says, well, Beethoven, you know, he's, a, he's an okay composer, but the only reason we think of him as great is because he's white and male. This is insane. Yeah. This is insane. But it's happening everywhere. Everything is being torn down. And the people who have been given the privilege of defending and passing on this inheritance are cowards. And they have all rolled over and played dead and said, of course, our, our inheritance is racist. And we are now from here on in going to make decisions based on the trivialities of gonads and melanin. <laughs> um, I, I'm guessing that gonads and melanin, that could be the title of your next book, first off. That was... <laughs> <laughs> Go nuts and melanin. Um, do you get a lot of academics reaching out to you, telling you their their version of this story? And do they ever do anything? I mean, what percentage do you think actually speak up? My my inbox is is almost like a therapy session from these people at this point. Yeah, they're terrified. Uh, there's, you know, I just find it amazing that the left claims that oh, cancel culture, you guys are just victim whiners, it doesn't exist. What are you talking about? Again, we are, there's a, a perceptual divide here that is so massive, and I despair how you bridge it. But the left really does not think that they're censoring people. But yes, practically every single faculty member and every conservative student is walking around scared to death that he's going to be the next one to fall under. And what really worries me, and Dave, you know, you are our premier exponent of free speech. Conservative newspapers, student newspapers are so essential. I was not a conservative as a college student. So this was, and I don't even know back in the 70s if there was a conservative newspaper at Yale. I think probably not. It was a much less political time. But they are essential. Well, what's been going on recently with, uh, in the, now that sort of seems like ancient history during the Trump era, he would nominate judges to the federal bench and their enemies would dig up writings of these students from their mm -hmm. college time. Mm -hmm. There was a guy that went to Stanford uh, who was nominated for the Ninth Circuit and he wrote some very scathing and satirical pieces about multiculturalism. Well, he was denied the, the going forward with the nomination, not just by the Democrats, but by Marco Rubio and, and Tim Scott, to their eternal discredit, Naomi Rao did squeak through, but she was critical of uh, campus rape culture. And she had to backtrack and, and confess her sins and say, oh, well, of course there's rape culture when there is not. Uh, but what I'm worried about is any, any student who is forward-oriented and future-oriented will say, I don't dare write the truth about what's going on on a college campus today because that's going to be used against me uh, in my next job. And so you've got a very subtle self-censorship that's going on that means that the truth is going to get harder and harder to get You know, out. I'm reminded of an event that I did at University of New Hampshire a couple of years ago that went viral where there was a whole bunch of protesters and kids were screaming at me and this one girl, a, a brown-skinned girl, she happened to be brown-skinned, it doesn't matter to me, but I'm mentioning it because it gives context to the story. She started screaming at me, heckling, and saying that I could be killed when I walk out of here. 
And I thought, wait, it's the middle of the day in New Hampshire, are students being killed? But I realized what she was saying was so emotionally disconnected from reality that there was virtually nothing that I could say to her. And it became very clear that there was nothing I could say to her to calm down. But that they had, they had ginned up such an irrational fear in her that it had almost, in essence, taken over every other faculty that she has. And these are the universities that are supposedly, that still present themselves to these idiotic donors who keep funneling truckloads of cash into their maw to be used for more hate and, and, and uh, victimology and destruction of our traditions. These are the colleges that are teaching them this fantastical delusion that they are at risk. And it is what is now in our culture at large, whether it's the idea that children shouldn't be in school because of COVID, or again, people, you know, I'm, I'm here in Orange County and it's better, my pool rules here are better than, than New York, but otherwise I walk in the faculty housing area of, of UC, University of California, Irvine, at as early as I can get out there to avoid the damn faculty members <laughs> who, you know, at 6 a.m. again, they're, you're out in this huge, right. fresh air. They're wearing masks. Are you people insane? But that that one feels alive and being frightened. Yeah. And we also see this now with this, I would argue, completely fantastical narrative that the world is under threat from white supremacist violence uh, and, and pouring troops. They keep coming into the Capitol. You know, they're coming into every other Capitol. Uh, in this sort of deliberate theater supporting the lie that the country's biggest threat right now is these kooks uh, that, that got out of control and were horribly ill-mannered and disgusting in the Capitol. But that was a one-off, and it is not the, the character of our, our, our country right now. But that is another sort of... Uh, Safetyism lie that is now a, a typical product of the academy. Okay, so I want to I want to dive into that because I know you have a bunch to talk about there. But I, just before we do that, I think it'll segue sort of nicely. Is you've mentioned multiculturalism a few times, and I think when the average person hears the phrase multiculturalism, they think yes, we should be a multicultural society. Isn't that what we are? My neighbors from this country, my you know my aunt is from that country. Blah blah. Aren't we multicultural? But there's a distinct difference between multiculturalism and the way that America has done the melting pot. D is that a fair statement? And, and, can, you, and yes. can you explain it a little bit? Because I think people, once they hear you say, I'm against multiculturalism, they automatically think that that has some racist beginning to it, you know? Well, the reality, the, the empirical fact of multiculturalism is it is not inclusive, it's not additive, it is subtractive. It is done in the name of labeling the Western tradition, which has been encyclopedic. It has been inclusive. It has taken in people from across the globe to, to put that, to denigrate it, and to teach students and adults to see it through the lens of oppression, which is just tragic, utterly tragic. Uh, and, and the multicultural idea is one that is antithetical to the power of the human imagination. I don't know if there's a single more idiotic conception than the one 
of cultural appropriation that is trying to draw boundaries around the human imagination mm -hmm. and say that if you're, say, a, uh, a, a white female writer, you cannot write a novel that has a black male protagonist in it because that would be culturally appropriative. Are you kidding me? Uh, the you know there's the greatest artists of our time have seen into people very different than themselves. I've s seen some of the most extraordinary explorations of female sexual jealousy by male writers uh, who simply possess the, the the feature of empathy. So multiculturalism, as practiced and as given within our world today, is not saying let's. Yes, let's learn the uh, great epic traditions of India or China, uh, but rather it means that hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go, which is the Jesse Jackson infamous chant from Stanford of the 80s. That's, that's the reality of it. And the other reality is, frankly, uh, as, as, as inclusive it has been, it is... Uh, a European tradition, and it is white, sorry, mostly, not exclusively, but there weren't a whole lot of blacks writing Renaissance madrigals. So if you're an early music group, you know, doing Baroque music, and you've now decided that your mission is social justice and your, your mission is to be an anti-racism organization, which music organization after music organization is declaring itself as our mission is to be anti-racist. Sorry, just the reality of history is there are not a lot of black composers. The reason there's not black composers is not because of racism. It's because that's what the demographics were. Nobody goes to African music and says, well, we can't perform it because <laughs> there's no whites. Or, or we can't do Balinese, you know, the monkey chant because there were no British whites in there. There are certain realities of history and, and population groups, that that's just what history is. You cannot change it. All right, so let's, let's shift to where you were going there about the Capitol Hill protests. Are you telling me, Heather McDonald, that that <laughs> man with the horns and the face paint, that that guy was not the leader of a giant coup? They weren't gonna take over the entire government that day? Because if you watch CNN, <laughs> Jake Tapper, there was an insurrection. These people were gonna take over all of our governmental institutions. Well, I am not going to defend them for an instant, and I, I cannot state enough uh, that as a, a prerequisite prolegomena to everything I'm saying, I'm not justifying them, I'm not a making an apology for them, but this was a one-off. You know, this was the moment that the left has been hoping for that we were told, uh, you know, was going to happen after the election, it never happened, uh, and these guys got out of control. It is also true uh, that, as we heard with the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, we heard for the riots, the race riots that did a hundred thousand times more damage than happened as a physical matter and as a life matter than happened on January 6th. The rolling riots that we saw over the summer through the fall that are now being completely rewritten out of history. Yep by the mainstream media, not that they acknowledged them at all at the time, but now they're being completely erased. 
those were far more destructive in terms of property damage and damage to government property than anything that happened on January 6th. I simply do not believe that what happened then represents an ongoing terror threat. These people are disorganized, they're losers, they got out of control, and they have been in the grips of what I would say uh, is a delusion, which is the idea that the election was systematically rigged. Uh, you know, I, but what I, you know, one's attitude towards what went on on January 6th to a certain extent will be influenced by whether you believe the rigging narrative. They believe it. And, and if the election was systemically rigged, that is very serious business. Mm-hmm. That undermines the legitimacy of our government and justifies something. It doesn't justify violence, but it justifies something. Uh, and, and so that, that makes this whole uh, debate about what went on complicated because there's a factual dispute mm-hmm. at the heart of, of, of both sides. So from a legal perspective, um do you think Trump was inciting them when he was saying, I mean, he did repeatedly say peaceful, but it's, but I think what a lot of people are saying is, well, what did he think was going to happen when, when they got there? I mean, actually, I think had things not gotten out of hand, Ted Cruz would have issued a, a you know, a statement that day saying, you know, I, I object to this or that. And Rand Paul would have done the same. The day would have finished up. And then, and then actually what I think would have happened was people would have realized it was over. I think that's where it was all heading. Yeah, I'm not an expert on the law of, of incitement, so I'm not. I don't know what the legal standards are, but it's complicated. I mean, he's he's got statements, and again, this is what's difficult: is how you view what he said does depend on what your view is of the underlying claim of rigging. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't get around that if you think the rigging idea was preposterous, as I do. Then, you know, for him to go and say, you know, take back the Capitol uh, sounds possibly uh, too provocative. But if it's right, if, if he really was the rightful winner and the election was stolen from him, uh, then his rhetoric looks simply factual. You know, it's, I, so, I want to stop you there for a second because it's interesting because even though you're really just talking about sort of the, the sort of psychological makeup of some of the people and the behaviors related to the information that we all get, I know it's very possible that YouTube is going to take this video down because we're really not even supposed to talk about this. Even though you're fully saying that you believe that, it, that the election was legitimate. But that's just mm-hmm. the sort of information war that we're in related to all of this. You know, the question, Dave, is what is this country going to look like in five years or three years? This this censorship is happening so quickly. I, I mean, my mind is just blown by it. I don't know what one can do. And And the other thing that worries me, and this comes out of the academy again, up to now, federal judges have been pretty good in striking down free speech limitations on college campuses which, you know, they, they, the things that get appealed to them tend to be the, the speech codes, which are by now are sort of archaic and a trivial problem compared to the much broader campus climate of censorship. But 
the judges have been pretty good on First Amendment. But what are future judges going to be like? They're, they're the product of this academy as well. And during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, you had students from the Harvard and Yale law schools protesting, saying, believe survivors, you know, trying to, to torpedo uh, the Kavanaugh nomination. The believe survivors mantra that is the absolute central plank of feminism today is completely antithetical to due process. It is the rejection of the presumption of innocence. The hate speech conceit that we're seeing now weaponized in the world at large to do censorship when you have members of the press saying we should censor Fox News, we should deplatform everybody because hate speech is behavior. Hate speech destroys people's lives, as you pointed out, hate speech is not a constitutionally protected or you know recognized category. Yeah. The judges, the judges that we are entrusting with our constitution are the products of the academy that is giving us these these poisonous ideas. So I don't know how much longer we can count on America the way we know it to have yeah, been. It's so, I mean, it's, it's scary what you're saying there, but I think what I hear from a lot of conservatives is, oh, the courts are the sort of last line on this, that maybe Trump got enough judges in for now, because he did get a lot of, I mean, was something like 400 judges, if I'm not mistaken, he got a ton of judges in, that that's the last line. But but I think you're right, it's also that they're a function of the culture and everything else, and the more we target individual people and then they get scared and they don't wanna be called a racist, on top of the fact that they themselves may have been indoctrinated at, at some level, it's a, it's a scary stew. Uh, let, let me shift to something that you might find a little more uh, inspiring then, I was at, uh, the Turning Point USA Student Action Summit uh, right before Christmas. And uh, we've talked about this before, but you're you're a non-religious conservative, which sometimes people find to be an oxymoron. I do not, and we've had a couple interesting chats about it. But at Turning Point, they had a conservative secular coalition there. It was the first time this group had been invited. And there, was, there were a lot of them there. I did an interview with them. And as I was talking, I think I brought you up in the interview, but I see something really nice happening there, that there suddenly is this sort of burst of secular conservatism. Uh, and I thought you might just like to hear that. Interesting, no, I was unaware of that. That's fantastic. It's, it doesn't necessarily change a lot of the other rhetoric that comes out of uh, a lot of conservative talk show hosts. But, but you know, again, if we, if we really believe in being inclusive, uh, that's that's a good thing. Yeah, that seemed to be the overriding idea. So sort of going back a little bit to the to the censorship part of this, has any of the big tech censorship, the way they're trying to kick Fox off the air, their way, the way they're trying to get rid of YouTubers or saying that you can't talk about any of these things, has any of that pushed your free market principles to the breaking point? That seems to be a new place that libertarians and conservatives are fighting at the moment. Like, oh, we should have used the power of the government when we had Trump to break up the tech monopolies, or do you fully believe in the free market or some combination thereof? Yeah, this again is not my expertise. And I'm, the, the big thing that I find so astounding with the, the members of the liberal elites that are calling now from censorship is their childlike inability to think in terms of principles. They think that they will always have power and that therefore they can establish the precedent of uh, shutting down speech that will never be used against mm -hmm. them. And you think, my God, you know, it, 
an adult is supposed to be able to abstract from his own situation to think in terms of neutral principles. And I used to go around to college campuses and, and say to the, the lefty students who were, yes, also screaming and, and, you know, having heart attacks at my very presence there, say, do you want this power of censorship in the hands of Donald Trump? And ironically, Trump did right. not try to censor people. But now you have, you know, Max Boot and Washington Post writers and heads of Columbia Journalism School saying, well, you know, this free speech thing is not really so great. We've got to get rid of it. But what if we get Trump 2024, God forbid, or somebody else? It's going to use it against you. And I would so I would say the same thing uh, mm -hmm. with taking on the the big tech companies that they are private. And so I, I'm, I'm worried about any kind of precedent that would be used for government to go after a private entity because we may think we're doing it in a, for a good cause now, but the tables can always turn. But this is something that is above my pay grade. I, am, I leave it to you. <laughs> to figure out a way out of this well, mess I knew, because it is, it's damn yeah, hard. Yeah, I, I know the tech part isn't necessarily your area of expertise, but I knew you could give me a sort of philosophical underpinning there. But all right, so going back to a little bit more of, of where you focus, um, we have heard Joe Biden say the phrase equity roughly one billion times in his few <laughs> weeks of, uh, I'll have to get fact-checked on that, but in his few weeks of office, I mean, equity, 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 you may remember that just, what, two or three days before the election, Kamala Harris released that video on Twitter talking about that we should all end up in the same place. This is obviously very different than equality. Are you kind of shocked or does it just all fit that, that we sort of slipped equity under the guise of equality into the system just that quickly? Where now if you say you're against equity, which is just sort of a, an imaginary position, uh, well, of course, you're racist and everything else. Yeah. Well, equity uh, is another, it's a synonym for the sort of the obverse, which is racism and white supremacy. I've been hearing more, my ear is more attuned to Biden's endless repetition of systemic racism. And uh, they're, they're the same thing. I mean, equity is the response to systemic racism. Equity means uh, quotas. It means the destruction of meritocratic standards. It means you hire and promote on the basis of race, not on the basis of qualifications. Uh, and any institution which does not show a proportional number uh, of, of blacks or Hispanics is thereby by definition uh, systemically racist and engaged in bias. And and I'm fully expecting Ibram Kendi, the big anti-racist uh, uh, huckster right now, who's probably the most highest paid of them, he may have even bumped out Ta-Nehisi Coates, to end up in the federal government and set up a uh, agency of anti-racism that will go after every private institution using the the completely dangerous and unjustified tool of disparate impact, which holds that any neutral process, such as saying right. we expect you as a uh, Alzheimer's researcher to have a highly competitive knowledge of the way neurology works, if that 
standard has a disparate impact on blacks, then you get rid of the standard uh, and say, we're going to replace it with quotas. The fact of the matter is the academic skills gap in this country is so vast that it is preposterous to claim that the lack of proportional representation Mm -hmm. in any institution is the result of bias. The facts are these. Black eighth graders, 54% of all black eighth graders in this country do not even have basic math skills. Basic is defined by the National Association of, of Educational Progress, the NAEP, as partial mastery of math concepts. 54% of black eighth graders are below basic in their math skills. 40% are below basic in their reading skills. That is, they do not even have partial mastery of eighth grade reading skills. That gap does not close. It continues at the SAT level where you have a standard deviation of gap, LSATs, GMATs, MCATs, everywhere you see that distinction. And by the way, their response is to now get rid of many of these things, right? Right, exactly. They're going to get rid of, that's why they're getting rid of the L, the SATs. And my prediction is we are also eventually going to get rid of crime data. You are going to have police departments. It's already very hard uh, to get your hands on crime offending data and, and criminal victimization data as well. And that is eventually going to be repressed as well in order to further strengthen the phony narrative that the disproportion of blacks in the prison system is due to racism, not to exponentially higher rates of criminal offending. So I think when some people hear you say that, when they hear, okay, well, 54% of black eighth graders aren't at, at that level or the level that they should be at, that they say, well, then that proves that there's systemic racism. If, if, if it's so, disproportionate to black people. I think at a surface level thought, I think that's what happens there. So can you just can you just go a little bit beneath that, maybe in, as a comparison to the Asian community? Because I know you've written a lot about that. Well, I've proposed a thought experiment, which is that if blacks acted like Asians for 10 years with all in all regards to things with that have a bearing on academic success, on success in life, such as being fanatical about schoolwork, you know, having parents that care about whether you're going to class, whether you're truant or not, taking your textbooks home, studying for the next exam, not, you know, screaming at your teacher, beating up your teacher, not getting involved in drugs or gangs, having a very low out of wedlock birth rate. If, if all those behaviors were the same and then we saw the socioeconomic disparities that we do, then it would be more than enough time to start talking about systemic racism. But right now, you have a culture, and and you have addressed this, Dave, with your fantastic interview with Brandon of Blexit, uh, a inner city culture that stigmatizes academic effort, that celebrates violence, criminality, uh, that is completely inimical to success in life, when the behaviors are so different, it is way premature 
to talk about systemic racism. There is a lot that can be done, at least in theory. I mean, we've been trying for decades without a whole lot of success, but it, it remains theoretically possible to change the culture and the behaviors that I think are clearly related to the fact that we don't have absolute equity in outcomes that, that Kamala Harris and Biden uh, pretend to want. And as long as we can no, can't talk about those behaviors and we keep going down this path of demanding more quotas, more transfer payments, nothing is going to change. Yeah, and by the way, of course, the great Thomas Sowell has been talking about this forever, that that in effect is right. what the welfare state did. Do you think there's anything though the government could do? Let's say we had a government, certainly not the government we have at the federal level now, but if there was a government to come in and say, okay, we want to address these issues around the family, around uh, generations on welfare, all of these things, we want to address it. What do you do? I mean, I've heard some people like Candace Owens say, you just, you just stop the programs tomorrow and you let that pain point hit. Do, do you think there's a sensible policy there? Do you say just end everything? What's the, what's the actual action that can happen? Government cannot do social uplift. It doesn't know how to do it. And of course, right now you have government, you know, the social, school, social work schools are cranking out government workers that are utterly committed to non-judgmentalism when it comes to self-destructive behavior. Like I, I remember in the, in the 90s in New York, I used to write a lot about welfare reform and would talk to these uh, nonprofit workers and they were adamant that they couldn't say a word about out-of-wedlock childbearing, which is the biggest mm -hmm. predictor of poverty in this country. If, if we could wipe out out-of-wedlock childbearing, re-knit families together, we'd get rid of poverty and we'd get rid of almost all crime. And it's it's happening now in the white community as well among, you know, the, the hillbilly elegy uh, uh, population as well. Charles Murray has mm -hmm. written about that. Uh, so government does not know how to change people's upbringing. So yes, it would be a great thing. I, I would uh, absolutely back Candace Owens of going cold turkey. And there were proposals uh, about that for uh, during the welfare reform era of the 19. 90s of at least not giving more checks, larger checks when people had more children out of wedlock, but that was a very hard that sell. I would say government, you know, what it's there for is providing public order, providing the basis for people to exercise their own initiative. That is above all safe streets so that businesses don't have to worry about their employees. They can set up shop. Uh, and and people can thrive and get where they need to go without fear. You're speaking my language. It's so interesting what you said about in the 90s and the social workers and they couldn't bring up the, you know, the one-parent household. It reminds me of something that David Horowitz, who I'm, I'm sure you know of, told me once when he was still a lefty in New York City politics in the early 80s during the AIDS crisis. Um, they, or he was just sort of becoming a Republican in essence. And they knew that the AIDS crisis that in effect ground zero was these gay bathhouses because people were having all kinds of sex and doing drugs and all sorts of stuff. And the Republicans wanted to close down the bathhouses, but the Democrats said, no, you're a bunch of homophobes and you hate gay people. Thus, they actually extended the crisis probably for, for years and years after that, because it's just this, it's the same culture of fear in essence. Well, I've said, 
the big divide between conservatives and liberals or progressives or leftists is whether you see behavior as the most important determinant of life outcomes or you see large systemic structures as the determinant. And I'm sure there's, you know, counter examples here, but by and large, uh, a liberal is going to say, but look, you know, there's these huge structures, uh, homophobia or racism that prevent people from thriving. And, and again, in the case of AIDS, I mean, it was just remarkable that we were not allowed to talk about uh, grotesquely promiscuous sex and, and we pretending that AIDS is like an airborne disease, mm-hmm. an infectious disease, as opposed to something that is uh, almost 100% avoidable by not doing intravenous drugs uh, and not engaging in anonymous sex uh, with people who you have no idea what their STD status is or anything. You can avoid it 100%. And, but, and so a, a conservative is going to focus on those behavioral mm-hmm. choices that people make uh, and be more skeptical. And, and a liberal would say, how can you be so blind to the systemic structural barriers? And, and that's, it's, again, it's one of those constitutional divides in how we look at the world that is very hard to, to bridge. Do you think the, the more and more you do these things, that you study these things, talk about these things, and the more we've seen so much of, of what you talk about come true, do you ultimately think that it's partly just the way our brains are wired at the end, that it's just some people's fear center is this and some people's other fear center is that? So the mask then, if for some people, you walk around and go, oh man, these people are bananas, that's sort of where I'm at but then someone else thinks it actually in some way is giving them purpose in, in a bizarre sense. That's absolutely right. It, it does give you purpose and you feel like you're part of something bigger and, and fear is, is as I say, it's, it gives, you feel like you're alive and it also gives you virtue. Yeah, I do. And, and I also think we're all susceptible to enormous cognitive blindnesses, you know, I, and uh, so I'm sure, you know, conservatives are, are just as, inconsistent in their application of principles. I mean, we've all seen the the sort of seesaw go up and down as to whether one's in favor of executive orders based on whether your guy's in office or not. So I do kind of despair. I mean, I I have to say, uh, and and this is going to anger a lot of people and alienate a lot of people, but I have been uh, depressed by seeing the willingness of so many people on the on the right to embrace what I think are just completely ridiculous conspiracy theories with regards to Dominion voting systems and to not apply the Hume test, the, the test for miracles of, of, of having a basic skepticism towards claims, which ask, is it more likely than not? Is it more likely than not uh, that there was a systemic uh, conspiracy across all levels of government in this country to destroy Trump votes. To me, that is, it's it just it's a step too far. But people have selective rationality, mm-hmm. uh, and so I think that kind of a libertarian view that views everybody as it's all going to come out all right in the wash because we're all rational. It's not quite the way it works, and we've had people like Daniel Kahneman for years now point out the 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 sort of uh, 
failures of how human beings are wired cognitively and our uh, tendency towards the agency where it doesn't exist. I would say that's part of the religious impulse as Mm -hmm. well. So one can only hope and make those arguments as, as often as one can from one's own perspective of rationality, knowing that we are, I am fallible too. And, and I think we need some epistemological humility uh, towards our own positions as, as, as even as we're criticizing what appear to be complete insanity on the side of, uh, of our of ideological opponents. That probably is the right place to stop because it was a beautiful ending, but I'm gonna push you one further, which is that my, my audience knows that I'm really trying to help people just not feel crazy about all of this because the world really does feel crazy. We're, we're watching the close of the old world. We're watching the beginning of, of a new world that, feel, that is going to feel very different no matter what. Um, I sense you're probably uh, similar to the way I think of myself. I, I consider myself a world weary optimist. But, but really a realist more than anything else. I, I think you, pro- you, you certainly must consider yourself a realist, but can you, can you track some sort of future that looks okay over the next couple of years? Like, is there something that you can sort of see in the distance that's, that's like, oh, we can get through this without the complete destruction of everything that, you know, is good? The truth. I mean, I, I just, and I'm not a world very optimist. I'm a world very pessimist. Again, this is a constitutional difference. I'm, I'm, I can tell. I'm not an optimist by nature, and I know that clouds how I see things. And I'm, I find optimists crazy. Like, how can you guys think it's going to get better? It's not. But let's pretend. But no, there are there are ways. The only way out of this is the yeah. truth. Do not be cowed by the charge of racism. I do believe that the core problem in all of our world today is the. Uh, racial gap, the idea that America is racist, white supremacist, that's driving an enormous portion of the current insanity. We have to speak the truth about accomplishment, about culture, and, and not allow our history and our civilization to be torn down based on hatred, resentment, uh, and, and, and mediocrity. Stick up for what you love. I'm going to stick up for the, the art that I think is, is greater than any of us have any right to, to deserve. We do not deserve the beauty of Chopin and Brahms piano music and Mozart operas. None of us have done anything to justify this cornucopia of sublimity. Keep fighting for it. Keep fighting for what you believe with respect, not violence. Uh, but that's all you can do is just go down fighting at the very least. Heather McDonald, you are truly one of my favorite guests. Your most recent book is The Diversity Delusion, which we'll link to right down below. And uh, you're, you're in OC, I'm here in LA. Maybe we meet in the middle for coffee. I don't <laughs> want to get arrested. We'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll wear a mask, two masks. No, I have to wear we'll two We'll double now. up, we'll double up. Thank you so much, Heather. 